Luckily, when most Americans hear the national public warning system, it's only a test. When it's needed, it's needed, though. Now the Homeland Security Department has issued new guidance to operators of the warning system who are distributed throughout the United States. The guidance is how to protect the systems from electromagnetic pulse, or EMP, whether the result of sunspots or nuclear detonation. The guidance was a joint effort of several DHS components. For details, I spoke to Science and Technology Directorate Program Manager Brent Talbot, starting with why EMP, why now? EMP and and all of that came about back in the 1960s, at least the awareness of it. The IPAWS system was one that's developed by FEMA, and that's the Integrated Public Alert and Warning System, and it's part of the emergency broadcast system. As we all know, as we've listened to the radio, and again, it's interrupted every now and then for tests of that system, FEMA developed a dual enclosure system that sits next to about 77 radio stations around the country. And what it's, it's designed to do is take over in the case of an EMP or another natural disaster and enable the president to get out the messages to the American public in the case of, of emergencies. And so it, it reaches about 90% of the, the population. And they developed the system to withstand an EMP. And we were fortunate enough to work with them to, to test that system against that uh, eventuality or possibility. And as you imply, this was not strictly a Homeland Security S&T gambit to create these recommendations. You work closely with the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Absolutely. CISA works with the other components within DHS to help us understand uh, the full scope of the, the requirements. We work with our colleagues there, and we were very fortunate to work with FEMA uh, to help them with the, the testing of the IPOS system. And so together, we were able to come up with the uh, recommendations that are put forth in that report that we we published. So FEMA, CISA, and S&T. Absolutely. It's all one great big DHS family team, whatever you want to call it. And on the topic of EMP itself, what's the issue with it now? If the infrastructure shown to be protected against EMP, sounds like everything's okay. Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, the testing that we did was successful. The testing and the, the system worked well. So we're, we're hopeful that it will withstand whatever gets thrown at it. You've got a series of recommendations, though, for local agencies, federal agencies, and, of course, the people that are in the private sector that operate this as radio stations. In fact, our sister station, WTOP, is one of those 77 that has the box that you described. What do we have to do next, then? What we use the testing of the iPod system to help us do is to to write those recommendations, as you indicated. And this is primarily for the owners and operators of the critical infrastructure that we have, the electric grid, the power stations, the water treatment plants, uh, those kinds of things. So we came up with some recommendations, about seven of them, to put out to those owners and operators to help them devise what it is they need to do uh, to protect themselves against an electromagnetic pulse. From the emergency broadcast system, the way that is protected provides lessons that other people with other pieces of infrastructure that have electronics in them could also learn then to protect those systems from EMP. Absolutely. And among those recommendations, look at your system for what vulnerabilities does it have against something that's going to affect 
your uh, circuitry or electric power or something along those. Determine what kind of approach you want to use to protect those things. And then what systems are you dependent on? What are the requirements that you have for, do you have to have someone attending the, the system? Do, can it be a standalone all by itself? And then protect the points of entry from an electromagnetic pulse or other uh, something like that. Then to develop your pro, uh, operational procedures. What are you going to do in the if that you know kind of disaster happens? And then, as with any system, you need to inspect it, whatever you're using to to protect that. Maintain it. Make sure that it's in good working order. And then train using your own operational procedures, and and practice on that. Do exercises. Make sure that your people know what they're doing, and make sure that. You know, for example, if you've got your equipment that's uh, most vulnerable in a cabinet, make sure you always keep the cabinet door closed. You know, simple things like that. We're speaking with Brent Talbot. He's a program manager at the Homeland Security Department's Science and Technology Directorate. What are the sources of EMP that we should worry about the most? Again, going back to the 50s and 60s, an atomic explosion is a source of EMP. But in recent years, I guess we realize it can, or more recent years than that, It can come from sunspots or from other sources directed against the United States that are not nuclear explosions. You bring up a great point. The ones that we we are looking at primarily are those high-altitude thermonuclear explosions. Those are the man-made. And you you talked about the the sunspot. Those are naturally occurring. Not all of them are intense enough, of course, to reach the Earth. And those that do reach the Earth, not, not all of them are intense enough that they have a negative impact on our, our critical infrastructure. But but those are the two main things that we're looking at, the the man-made and then, of course, the, the natural, which is actually called a geomagnetic disturbance, but it has a lot of the same effects of, a, of an EMP. So we, we clump those together. But anything that produces enough induction to really wreck a circuit could be considered an EMP effect. Right, absolutely. But most of those are, are smaller in intensity, and they're not going to affect a very large swath of the country. Whereas a GMD or, you know, an, an EM, a man-made EMP would, would have the possibility of affecting a larger swath. But are there sources now that we are aware of, say, from rival or enemy nations that can produce an EMP that could do damage but is not a thermonuclear explosion? Of course, yes. You, you, you can create the electronics um, into a, a mechanism where you could do that. The problem with that is is we would probably, I would hope, be able to detect uh, that equipment being manufactured, being put together. What we're doing right now is we're concentrating on the, the two bigger ones that would have the greater impact on a wider area. But yes, I mean, there there are other mechanisms why that folks can do that, that have a nefarious intent against us that, sure. that can do that. But if you're protected against a thermonuclear explosion, you're probably protected against anything else someone could launch. Absolutely. As long as, as I mentioned before, you are maintaining the equipment uh, or the, the mitigation factors that you've put in place correctly, that you're, the cabinet that you've got your electronics in, you're keeping the, the door closed, you're, you're keeping the equipment in an, an internal room. That Do you have a sense of how industry that provides critical network infrastructure, such as banking and finance, retail, and so on, they have data centers and they have data services, airlines, you could go on and on. Is that something that they generally think about in designing data centers and planning for continuity of operations, EMP? I think that in a lot of cases, they are going to think about similar things, maybe not an electromagnetic pulse, but they are thinking about natural disasters that can occur. And they're going to 
again, they're going to put their data centers in a, a zone that's not going to be prone to flooding or earthquakes or something of that nature. They're going to put them in a very, uh, in an interior room. They're going to put some of the, the factors into place that will also help protect against an EMP. But one of the things that we're trying to do is raise awareness of the EMP threat and make sure that, that folks have the recommendations that they can use to mitigate against it. And then we also want to make sure that incident reporting and recovery from those events are also are occurring and that, that we can make recommendations for those as well. And what about cloud computing facilities? They must have that as part of their operation because they're standalone buildings. You drive by them and they have lots of security. Is EMP, in your understanding, something that, that they are concerned with also? Yes, um, it, it, it should be. We're trying to, to work with all of the, and, and CIS is a great component within uh, DHS that does that, that works with the critical infrastructure folks and with the other departments within government and works within the different components within DHS to to help make sure that information is out there, that those folks are aware of it, that the critical infrastructure is as well protected as we can recommend it be in that we don't regulate that, but we can certainly make the recommendations based on For example, like the testing we did on the iPod system. And you don't need to have a lead roof in order to be protected against EMP? No, I'm not sure that that lead would be the the proper material. Um, But certainly, if you're familiar with a Faraday cage, you could certainly build one around your critical components, your house, your your data center, or whatever. Um, Although, you know, something like that would be a little bit more expensive to do. It just depends on on what do you think is, is worth the time and energy to do. Right. So the best outcome then would be an EMP ineffective against everything except Bitcoin mining centers. That's a joke. <laughs> I don't, no, well, I yeah, well, you know, again, we're, we're dealing with the critical infrastructure and Bitcoin mining uh, probably doesn't fit in that category. Brent Talbot is a program manager at the Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate. Thanks so much for joining me. Been a pleasure. Thank you for having us. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. 
and his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of 
coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so while sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But 
I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it, whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.